Chapter 5 of In the Land of Cave and Cliff Dwellers by Frederick Schwatka. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 Central Chihuahua In the Land of Living Cave and Cliff Dwellers The Tarahumari Indians Civilized and Savage I propose to devote the greater portion of this chapter to a consideration of the Tarahumari Indians of Central and Southwestern Chihuahua, a tribe of aborigines that I have occasionally seen mentioned in works and articles on Mexico, especially of its northern part, but of which I can find no detailed account anywhere in the literature I possess of this region. The fact of my having been in that country for some time, seeing and investigating some of their most curious habitations and customs, coupled with what information I could get from a few hardy Mexican pioneers in the fastnesses of the great Sierra Madre range, who corroborate each other, constitutes the basis of my comments. Although the Tarahumari tribe of Indians are not at all well known, for I doubt if many of my readers have ever heard of them, they are nevertheless a very numerous people, and were they in the United States or Canada, where statistics of even the savages are much better kept than in Mexico, they would have an almost worldwide reputation. On account of this utter lack of statistics, it is impossible to state with close approximation the number of Tarahumari Indians in this part of the country. So I will have to rely on the estimates, or really broad guesses, of those best informed, giving my readers the benefit of my own researches as a check, although not claiming they will make a very good one to the wide range of estimates made by others. In a previous chapter, I spoke of the number of these Indians, but really am inclined, from all I could learn of them, to estimate their number at 20,000 or thereabouts. An Indian tribe of 20,000 people in our own country would be heard of often enough in press and public to become a household word, but the isolation of the Tarahumari Indians from the beaten lines of travel and the little interest taken in them by local and governmental officials, especially the interest which would make their habitations, habits, and customs known to the world, have thrown a veil over them both dark and mysterious. Some tribes of no greater strength in the interior of Africa are better known to us at home than are these Tarahumares of the Sierra Madre Mountains of Mexico. They are now seldom seen in the city of Chihuahua or even on the diligence lines radiating to the many western points which draw their supplies from this town. And it is only when the mule trails to the deeply hidden mountain mines are taken that they are seen at all. Still better, if one cuts loose from these two, he will be yet more likely to find them in all their rugged primitiveness. Those usually seen by the white traveler to these parts are called civilized and live in log huts, tilling a bit of mountain slope, not unlike the lower classes of Mexico whom they copy in their departure from established habits. It is no wonder, therefore, that little has been said about them more than to mention occasionally where they once lived in a country now held by higher civilization. Even the word Chihuahua itself is a Tarahumari word and was applied to the site of the present city of Chihuahua. Its meaning is the place where our best wares were made. 
the territory lying between the line of the Mexican Central Railway, which cuts through a small part of their ancient country, and the Sierra Madre proper, or where diligence ceased to go and all transportation is done on muleback or with donkeys, the Tarahumaris have abandoned to invading civilization or have obeyed its mandates and become civilized themselves. They are only found in a primitive state in the Sierra Madre, with far greater excess on the eastern slopes of the wide range. Beyond the Tarahumaris to the west are the Mayo and Yaqui tribes of Indians on the rich and level slopes of the Mexican states of Sinaloa and Sonora, while on the north they come in contact with the omnipresent and widely feared Apache, whose hand was against everyone and everyone's hand against him. Though a peaceful tribe of Indians, as far as their relations with Mexico have been concerned, they nevertheless were not wanting in the elements that made them good defenders of their land, and the Apaches, so dreaded by others, gave the mountainous country of the Tarahumaris a wide berth when on their raids in this direction. The Tarahumaris, equally armed, which they seldom were, were more than a match for these Bedouins of the boundary line between our own country and Mexico. One who has ever seen a group of wild Tarahumaris could not credit them with a warlike or aggressive disposition, or even with much of the defensive combativeness that is necessary to fight for one's country. Even the semi-civilized among them are shy and bashful to a point of childishness that I have never seen elsewhere among Indians or other savages, and I have lived among nine-tenths of the Indian tribes of the United States and a great number outside our domains. Heretofore, the Eskimo of North Hudson Bay I deemed the most modest of savages, but they are brigands compared with the Tarahumari natives. If they have the least intimation of a white man's approach, he stands as little show of seeing them as if they were some Tibbon animal fleeing for life. A Mexican gentleman who owns a part interest in a rich silver mine in the great broken barrancas leading out from the Sierra Madre toward the Pacific side or into the states of Sinaloa and Sonora, but who always reached his mind by way of Chihuahua, told me that he had several times passed over the mountain trail on muleback when with a pack train, and not seen a single Tarahumari, although the trip occupied a number of days in their country, and took him where he should have seen two or three hundred, if they had made no effort to escape his notice. The country thereabouts is well-wooded and often heavily timbered, and the timid native, hearing the clang of the mule shoes on the rough rocky trail, will at once retire to the seclusion of the nearest thick brush, and there wait until the intruder is out of sight. They do not fly like a flock of quail suddenly surprised by the hunter, however, for if caught, they generally stand and stare it out, rather than seem to run from the white man while directly in his presence. But if the latter is vigilant and keeps his eyes wide open, he will often see them skulking away among the trees or behind rocks as he is approaching their houses, or the caves or cliff dwellings wherein they abide. Of course, as one would naturally expect, the more savage Tarahumari natives are those living in the rocks, cliffs, and caves, or brush hakals, are much wilder and more timid than those pretending to adopt the forms and duties of civilization. It is this peculiarity that has made it so hard to understand or learn anything about them, and this too in a land where so little interest is taken in gaining knowledge of the subject.
In my wanderings through this portion of the Sierra Madre, and right here I might state that on some Mexican maps, this portion of the great range is occasionally labeled as the Sierra de Tarahumare, about the only place we ran across the name. I was more fortunate in seeing a large number of them engaged more nearly in all the labors and duties they are known to follow than is usually the case. The civilized Tarahumari, living in rough stone and adobe houses, with brush fences around his cultivated fields, and in the most savage of the race, acknowledging none of the Mexican laws or customs, and living in caves in the rocks or under huge boulders, or in cliffs high up the almost perpendicular faces of the rock, where they probably tend a few goats and plant their corn on steep slopes using pointed sticks to make the holes in the ground into which the grains are deposited. In appearance, the Tarahumari savage is, I think, a little above the average height of our own Indians in the southwest. They are well-built and very muscular, while the skin of the cave and cliff-dweller is of the darkest hue of any American native I have ever seen, being almost a mixture of the Guinea Negro with the average copper-colored aborigine that we are so accustomed to see in the western parts of the United States. The civilized Tarahumaris are generally noticeably lighter in hue. The Mayos and Yaquis on the west, the Apaches to the north, the Tepehuanes to the south, and the Comanches to the east are lighter in their complexions than the cave and cliff-dwelling Tarahumaris, although they live in much warmer climates than the latter. There is every opportunity to inspect the skin of a savage Tarahumari, as they wear only a breech-clout and a pair of rawhide sandals, and if it be a little chilly, as it always is at the evening, at night-time, and in morning on the elevated plateau land or mountainous regions of Mexico, they may add a serape of mountain goat's wool over their naked shoulders. Their faces generally wear a mild, pleasing expression, and their women are not bad-looking for savages, although the older women break rapidly in appearance after passing thirty to thirty-five years, as nearly as I could judge their ages. The savage branch of the Tarahumaris is, of course, the more interesting, as the most nearly representing our own Indians of fifty to one hundred years ago, or before the white man came among them. The civilized are not unlike those we have cultivating the soil in a rude way around the western agencies, although those of Mexico have no governmental aid such as we so often and so lavishly pour into the laps of our copper-colored brethren of the north. The savage Tarahumari lives generally off all lines of communication, shunning even the mountain mule trails if he can. His abode is a cave in the mountainside or under the curving interior of some huge boulder on the ground. The Sierra Madre Mountains, where they live, are extremely picturesque in their rock formation, giving thousands of shapes I have never seen elsewhere. Battlements, towers, turrets, bastions, buttresses, and flying buttresses, great arches and architraves, while everything from a camel to a saddle can be described in the many projecting forms. It is natural that in such formation, a curious blending of limestone pierced by the more recent upheavals of eruptive rock, many caves should be found, and also that the huge irregular granitic and nisoid boulders left on the ground by the dissolving away of the softer limestone 
should so often lie so that their concavities could be taken advantage of by these earth-burrowing savages. The first cliff-dwellers I saw were on the Bakochik River, the first day out on muleback from Karichik. These cliff-dwellers had taken a huge cave in the limestone rock, some 75 feet above the water and almost overhanging the picturesque stream. They had walled up its outward face nearly to the top, leaving the latter for ventilation, probably, as rain could not beat in over the crest of the budding cliff. It had but one door, closed by an old torn goat hide, through which the inhabitants had to crawl, like the Eskimo, into their snow huts or igloos, rather than any other form of entrance I can liken it to. The only person we saw was a wild man of the woods, who, with a bow and arrows in his hand and the skin of a wild animal around his loins for a breech clout, was skulking along the big boulders near the foot of the cliff. A dozen determined men inside this cliff dwelling ought to have kept away an army corps not furnished with artillery, though I doubt if the occupants hold these caves on account of their defensive qualities, but rather for their convenience as places of habitation, needing but little work to make them subserve their rude and simple wants. My Mexican guide said they would only fly if we visited them, leaving a little parched corn, a rough matate or stone for grinding it, an unburned olla to hold their water and some skins, and, perchance, worn-out native blankets for bedding. So I desisted from such useless trip as getting over to their eyrie to inspect it. About three months before my first expedition into Mexico, I saw a notice going the rounds of the press that living cliff-dwellers had been seen in the San Mateo Mountains of New Mexico, and that as soon as the snow melted, a mounted party would be organized to pursue and capture them. But I have heard nothing from it beyond the little stir created at the time, in which the findings of any living cliff-dwellers anywhere in the world would be likely to create. Yet, here are people of that description of whom the world seems to have heard nothing. How many there are of them, as I have already said, it seems hard to tell. We saw at least five to six hundred scattered around in the fastnesses of this grand old mountain chain, and could probably have trebled this if we had been looking for cave and cliff dwellers alone along and off our line of travel. Let us place them at only three thousand in strength, and we would have enough to write a huge book upon, giving as startling developments as one could probably make from the interior of some wholly unknown continent. In fact, more curious, for the public is somewhat prepared for such a story by the large number of old deserted cliff dwellings found in Arizona and New Mexico, which have often been assigned to a people older than the ruins of the Toltec or Aztec races. That there is some relation between these old cliff-dwellers and the new ones, I think more than likely, and I believe that most writers who have seen both, or rather the ruins of the former and much of the life of the latter, as I have, would agree with me in this view. It is pretty clearly settled that the Apaches are Athabascans and came from the far north, and it seems not unlikely that they drove southward or exterminated the northern cliff-dwellers leaving only these here as representatives, although numerous beyond belief, of a most curious race generally supposed to be extinct. The Pueblo Indians of the same locality, by living in larger communities and stronger abodes, 
were better able to resist these Indian Northmen, and consequently some of their towns still exist. But the old cliff dwellers, like the new ones, could in many cases be cut off from water by a persistent and aggressive enemy, such as the Apaches must have been then, when just fresh from their northern excursion. It is still more probable, however, that they drove them southward until the retreating cliff dwellers became so powerful by being massed upon their southern brothers that they could resist further aggression and therefore give successful battle to their old foe as we know they have been able to do recently when the Apaches were performing such destructive work in this part of the country. It is a well-known fact in archaeology that a badly defeated people driven from their country by a superior force of numbers and occupying a new and less desirable tract, will generally reproduce their habitations, implements of the chase, and all other things which they may be called upon to construct in a much less perfect manner than when in their own country. And I found the cave and cliff dwellings of the wild Tarahumares in the Sierra Madre Mountains to be in general less perfect than the cliff dwellings far to the north, as those near Flagstaff, Arizona, the cave and cliff dwellings in the Mancos Canyon, and many others I could mention in our own southwest. Whatever may be the relation between the dead and departed northern cliff dwellers and their southern living representatives, it seems to me that it would well pay some scientists to devote a few years to their thorough study, as Catlin did so well among the Sioux, Cushing with the Zunis, and many others I could mention. All these Tarahumares, whether civilized to the extent of agriculture, living in houses, and having the other arts in a crude degree, and embracing Christianity, or whether in the most savage state, naked to the skin except rawhide sandals and living in caves or cliffs while still worshipping the sun and hoping for the return of Montezuma someday, all are to a great extent independent of the Mexican government much more than are any of the peaceable Indians of the United States from our own government, unless it be a few almost unknown tribes in the interior of Alaska. If a Tarahumari commits a crime against or does an injury to a Mexican or foreigner, the Mexican government takes notice of it and tries to punish the offender. But between themselves, except in a few cases of flagrant murder, they can conduct all administration of justice as well as other matters, wholly by officers of their own selection and by their own codes and customs. The very wild ones, the cliff and cave dwellers, know nothing of Mexican affairs and, in fact, fly from all white people like so many quail when they approach. The more civilized elect their own chiefs and obey their executive mandate so well, as a general thing, that there really is very little reason for the Mexicans to force their officials upon them, if their only object is a maintenance of peace. Still, the half-wild tribes of some parts of the mountains even war against each other without asking the Mexican government yes or no, and conclude their own treaties as a result of such quarrels on their own basis. I was informed by Mr. Alberto Mendoza, a perfect master of both Spanish and English, an interpreter at one of the big Sierra Madre silver mines, where there was also employed an excellent Tarahumari interpreter, that such a war as I have described recently broke out and was carried on by two factions in adjoining parts of the mountains. 
It was a very strange affair, of course, but I doubt if its existence was even known in any other part of Mexico. Singularly enough, the badge of office of the self-governing tribes is a scepter, if an ornamented stick held in the hand can be called a scepter. These black savages of the Sierra obey it more implicitly, however, than if it were a loaded Gatling gun trained on them. Whenever a government official or justice seizes this mace of the Madre Mountains and holds it aloft, every person inside is quelled more effectually than if it were a stick of giant powder that would explode if they did not obey. Its name among them, translated, is God's Justice, and certainly no superstitious people ever obeyed a mandate more readily and completely than do they this mute expression of their own laws, and without which they would often be lawless under the same circumstances. An almost ludicrous case was told me of a foul murder having been committed by the wild Tarahumaris on the person of a civilized one, the murderers holding possession of the body. It was natural that the civilized faction should want the corpse for burial, and they demanded it, but it was refused. The civilized natives then went to the boundary line of the two factions, hoping to get the chief of the wild savages to assist them. Here they found some four or five hundred of the latter drawn up in battle array with bows and arrows to dispute the passage into their own land. The chief was absent and refused to come to the assistance of the others, although demanded in the name of Mexican law with corresponding punishment. The civilized natives then conceived the idea of a small body of picked men going in a roundabout way to compel his attendance, which was done, although he still refused to exercise his authority to compel his own band to give up the corpse of the dead Tarahumari. The forcing of the wild chief into the dispute was about to bring on a collision between the two factions when one of the civilized natives wrenched his scepter from his hand waved it aloft, and demanded of the wild ones that they cease all hostile demonstrations and bring the body of the murdered man, all of which they did in the name of God's justice. Nearly all the civilized Tarahumaris are Christianized, while the wild ones living in cliffs and caves are, if they can be called anything, still worshippers of the sun and believers in the return of Montezuma. So this God's justice, as represented so effectually by the mace or scepter, cannot mean solely the Christian God or that of the Tarahumaris, for in either case it would have no effect on the other. There can be only one conclusion that I can see, and that is that this badge of authority is as old as the Tarahumaris themselves, or at least antedates the conversion of the civilized ones by the old Jesuits, or the conquering of the country by the Spaniards from Europe. The Mexicans use nothing of the kind, except probably in their state and federal legislatures, as we do in some of ours, and it is not at all likely that these natives, especially the wild ones, would have borrowed it from so distant and almost never visited a source. The civilized Tarahumaris have their own elections, patterned after the Mexicans in a crude way, well, the wilder ones have their chiefs, but whether they are elected or hereditary, I was not able to ascertain. I am inclined to think it is the former. The wildest known of the Tarahumari cliff and cave dwellers are probably those of the Barranca del Cobre, 
which can be seen from the Grand Barranca of the Urique as one skirts its dizzy cliffs, being, in fact, a spur of the Grand Barranca leading out to the east. There are undoubtedly many other, but unknown places where these savages dwell, if possible more primitive than those of the Barranca del Cobre. In this canyon, the cliff dwellers are often stark naked, except for a pair of huraches or rawhide sandals, these protecting the soles of the feet from the flint-like broken rocks of this part of the country, and without which even their tough hides would soon be disabled. Upon the approach of whites, they fly to their bird-like houses in the precipitous cliffs like so many timid animals seeking their burrows. The next nearest grade of these people go so far as to ornament the person with breech clouts after the latest fashion set by Adam and Eve, the more savage of these again using the skins of wild animals for this purpose, while the better grade manages to secure some dirty clothes from the others to finish out this necessary part of their wardrobe. When it is reflected that the winters are quite severe on the higher parts of the Sierra, the snow being some winters two and three feet deep, it is quite easy to conceive what constitutional toughness these fellows must have in their scanty attire. An Eskimo would long to get back to the Arctic if he were here so he could sit on an iceberg and get warm. On the great mountain trails, their feats of endurance are almost of a marvelous character. The semi-civilized are often employed as couriers, mail carriers, and so forth, and in all cases they invariably make from three to five times the distance covered by the whites in the same time, while there is no known domesticated animal that can possibly keep pace with them in the mountains. It takes six or seven hours of fairly continuous climbing to make, by muleback, from the mine in a deep gulch of the Cumbre, or crest of the Barranca del Cobre, by a most difficult mountain trail, the ascent made being 5,000 to 6,000 feet. It takes four hours to descend in the same way. A message was sent from La Cumbre by a Tarahumari footrunner to a person at the mine, and an answer received in an hour and 20 minutes, the same messenger carrying the letter both ways or making the round trip. One day, a Tarahumari carrier passed us just after we had gone into camp about three o'clock in the afternoon, bound for the same point we expected to reach in three days' hard travel by muleback. I wanted to send a message by him to this place, and on ascertaining when he would reach it was, as my hearers will easily infer, somewhat astonished to find out he expected to make it that night, and I was afterwards informed that he had done so. Not a great many years ago, the mail from Chihuahua to Batopiles was carried by a courier on his back, who made a distance over the Sierra Madre range a good 250 miles and return, or a total of 500 miles, in six days. Here he rested one day and repeated his trip, his contract being for weekly service. Alongside of this, the best records ever made in the many six-days-go-as-you-please contests that are heard of in the great cities of the United States sink into almost contemptible insignificance. I could give a dozen other instances, but these are enough. Of course these runners make many cutoffs from the established mule trails when their course is along them, and thus they save some distance, but making all such allowance 
their endurance is still phenomenal. End of chapter 5